Let's turn to Genesis 26. We're going to just look at a handful of verses in three different chapters so you can kind of get the running thought of what's going on and the background of what I'm going to kind of launch from from what I speak. Let's let's pray before we begin. God, thanks so much for um, this conference, for the uh, privilege of coming here, and I'm listening to the different speakers. And Lord, give us open hearts this entire day. Um, there's areas in all of our lives that we have um, probably blindedness to and areas that we can always do better in God. And so I pray as we look at your word through this entire day that um, we would have tender hearts to receive whatever um, words you want to send our way, words of encouragement, words of building up, but maybe even words of um, correction or rebuke, God. So let us be um, vulnerable in your presence, God, um, before you, because that's the place we want to be. Um, on our hands, um, on our on our knees, God, uh, before you, Lord. So, um, open up our, our eyes to your word. It has amazing things to show us if we just but have the, the eyes, the spiritual eyes to see it, God. Bless our time, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis. Now, you know, well, maybe you don't know this, but there's kind of a thing that preachers get criticized for um, on a pretty frequent basis of not preaching from the Old Testament. And so you can probably criticize me of many things, but you can't criticize me of never preaching from the Old Testament, because I definitely jump there quite a bit. And um, I feel like it can be easily ignored, it has been, and it is being easily ignored by the church today, but there's so much rich stuff in the Old Testament. If we just take the time to look at it, we can glean Many, 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 many things from it. We can learn many things. We can be uplifted by the many things. And I mean, it's if if this is the word of God, right? Then two thirds of it lies in the Old Testament. Okay, so we need to be. If we're going to be students of the word, that means Old Testament and New Testament. If we're just going to be students of the New Testament, then let's just be honest and say that. But I want us to be students of the word. Paul talked about preaching the whole counsel of God, so I want to make sure. <clears throat> um, as I teach, as I preach, that I'm trying to give you uh, the whole counsel of God. So we're going to start in Genesis. Genesis 26, verse 34. It says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Then look at chapter 27. In verse 46 it says, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And then go to chapter 28. Starting in verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So, that's kind of the running commentary on Esau's love life, really. And I think these passages here are interesting, really, for a few reasons. Um, and they start to make us ask some questions. Um, I mean, were these Hittite women mean to Isaac and Rebekah? Did they look down on them? Because it says that Rebecca loathed her life because of him, but it also says that they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. Now, all y'all are in here are married, so maybe you have experience with um, mother-in-laws, <laughs> because that's what Rebecca was, right? So maybe she played a part in some of the uh, the bitterness occurring there. Um, but it appears, in some sense, that they didn't treat Isaac and Rebekah very well. 
And if you take that into account, and then you take into account that in chapter 25, just one chapter earlier, Esau sells his birthright, you kind of start to get the picture that, I mean, he sells his birthright, major insult to the family, by the way. All right, time doesn't permit us to go into it, but to sell your birthright, just not a good thing to do. So he'd already um, insulted his parents greatly. Um, then he goes and takes um, Hittite women, plural, as wives, right? And, I mean, this is, you know, Isaac's son, right? So, I mean, Isaac obviously knew everything that God had told Abraham. That's his dad, so he's getting this information firsthand from Abraham. So, Isaac had all that information. Esau would have had it too, and known that they were they were being set apart. But then he goes and wanders and, and starts getting involved with Hittite women, which the culture of the Hittites, I mean, it was just horrible. It was horrible, right? Um, polytheism, sex cults, all sorts of stuff. So he was just making poor decision after poor decision after poor decision. But I want us to notice a few things here. It seems like there was some type of miscommunication between the parents and the children, or the child in this case. Back in 28, it says, in verse 6, it says, Esau saw that Isaac blessed Jacob. He'd already blessed him once. He's blessing him again. And it says in verse 8, when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, he went, so he went and took another wife. So, I mean, did they not voice concern initially? Isaac and Rebecca, had they not done proper training? I don't know, the text doesn't say it, so it's conjecture. But I think there's something we can draw here for ourselves, is when it comes to our children, we need to set clear expectations. Because Esau tries to go and do the right thing after he messes up. At least that's what the text seems to imply, right? Oh, the Canaanite women, they're not pleasing my dad. I want to please my dad. I want to meet his expectations. So I'll go and try to rectify the situation. So we need to, cl- we need to set clear expectations when it comes to our children. We need to lay it out for them and make it simple. I'm not talking like this laundry list of like 50 things, but if there are certain things that we want our kids to understand, certain things that we want them to do, we need to make it crystal clear to them. Now, you know, I have four kids, and they pick this up. Some of them pick up my expectations very clearly. Some of them not so clearly. Okay, One of my sons, you know, it's almost like he can read my mind. The other one, it's like I could write it out. I, I have to write it out on paper, really, for him a number of times because it just, for whatever reason, the verbal doesn't always click with him. So we have to learn, you know, how to minister to our kids and set those expectations in a way that they can also comprehend it. Figure out what's their communication style and then speak to them um, on that level. Um, so we need to lay it out. Even basic things. I mean, here it's talking about marriage, so let's talk about marriage. Um, you know, things like, is it important for your children to marry a believer? Well, sure, of course it is, right? But do your kids understand the importance of that? Do they, do they understand why that's important? But I think we would probably take it a step further and say not just marry a believer, but marry someone who, you know, who really loves the Lord, Right? I think they probably get the, at least most of our kids in here maybe get the idea of marrying a believer, but do they understand the importance of marrying someone who is truly seeking after the Lord, whose heart is set on him? And I think we need to start that, you know, when they're very young. But that conversation is an ongoing conversation. We can't, there's not just like you sit down when they're five or eight or ten or whatever age you want to set it at and have just one marriage conversation and then you're good. It's this kind of ongoing thing. And sometimes, you know, your kids, if they're curious, they'll be asking questions about that as they're growing up. But you also have to look for opportunities, and you just have to bring it up. So, you know, being a dad of, you know, one daughter, I'm obviously concerned for her future um, husband um, and and the choice she's going to make. And so I talk with her about that a lot. But I also talk with my boys about it a lot. You know, what kind of person are you going to marry? What do you want? How do you want them to treat you? I just want things kind of stern in their mind for them to be asking questions about this. You know, what if they seem really nice, but once you get to know them, they're kind of mean. I mean, what would you do if you're, you know, courting them? How would you handle that? Those type of things. Now, there's a danger in this, too, of course, that if we start to set certain expectations for our kids, 
that, they're, one, they're going to want to meet him. That's a good thing. But I think the danger is this. Um, they're going to try and act as we want them to act. Now, I get the whole, they're sinner, they're fallen, right? You get that too, right? But I think if kids start to understand our expectations, they're going to want to meet him. But I think the danger is this. They will meet them maybe externally, but it won't be internalized. So that's why I'm, I personally am concerned when it comes to um, my kids' salvation. I'm not like trying to push a prayer upon them. Because I think that what happens sometimes is, is we think, oh, they've prayed this prayer, um, and now they're saved, and, and we're good to go. And it can potentially give a false assurance of salvation. So I would rather have my kids be the ones prompting me and asking me questions and giving me the opportunity, not be like, you know, oh, they're five years old, it's time for me to talk to them about their salvation and have them pray a prayer. I want it to be the Lord prompting them. As much as I want to push it, I want God prompting their heart. I want him speaking to them. Why? Because I, I really am concerned about that um, inwardness and not just external. Look, um, most of our kids, if they've grown up in a Christian home, they're probably going to at some point claim Christianity. But they're claiming it probably initially, at least potentially, because you're claiming it. You're the parent. You're setting the example. They want to be like mom. They want to be like dad, right? So the danger is there is that there's just an external conformity and not an inward reality. Okay? So we need to be careful with that and make sure what? We shepherd the heart. We have to shepherd the heart. Okay? The army, the military, can make you do a great job conforming externally, right? But what happens to a number of those rebellious men once they get done serving their time? They're right back into the rebellion and horrible choices that they've made. Why? External conformity. You can, you can almost force, to a certain extent, um, external conformity. You can't do it inwardly. So shepherding the heart is really what we want to focus on. Really, this starts with training them from an early age. And we need to help them think through things. And here's what I want to say. Let's train. I read this article the other day, um, and it was, it was you know, some article about, you know, the dad's standing at the door with a shotgun when the guy comes to, you know, take out his daughter or whatever, you know, for the first time. And <laughs> But here's, here's what I want to say. Um, let's train our daughters in such a way that when that doofus guy that isn't really serious about the Lord comes along, that they've been trained enough and have that inward reality enough that, that they can reject him themselves. And they won't be swayed by that. So, I think, I mean, I think dads as a whole were very protective, and so we, we like the idea, you know, in one sense of the shotgun or whatever at the door. <clears throat> but, um, if we're not careful, we can kind of send an insulting message to our ladies that you're not smart enough to make decisions on your own, even though you're 20. The other thing is this, um, and I've seen this, you know, with our our, um, college ladies, is if you're going to let your daughter get any type of job or go out to some some high school classes, um, college classes, I mean, they're going to be approached by guys, and you're not going to be there. You won't be there. And so our ladies, hats off to our um, Change the Globe ladies, because, I mean, they've had numerous guys approach them outside of this church, <clears throat> and they've shot them down. Why? Because the parents have done the proper training. You're not going to be there every time. And once they get to high school, once they get to college, all right, they're going to they're be making their own decisions, a lot of their own decisions. So we're training them, when they start young, to be sharp, to have that inward reality, shepherding the heart. Because I want them to. I want. I want our ladies to be able to strike down those guys on their own. Now that doesn't mean we have. To, we aren't going to help navigate some pitfalls for them. The same thing with our guys, though, right? I mean, um, let's train our young men in such a way as that as they get older, and some you know pretty young lady comes along that they're not just you know falling all over her. 
if she doesn't love the Lord. Let's train them what a godly wife looks like. And let's give them that inward desire for that. Not just an outward beauty. That can be hard to do. But here's the thing. We need to emphasize these things repeatedly. Uh, First Peter talks about, um, he's talking, hey, by, I want to bring this up by way of remembrance. I want to remind you of these things. I want you to remember this. Why? And he says stuff that we really already know. So why is he saying it? Because we need to be reminded of it. So do our kids. Look at Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 23. So here's Solomon, and he starts in 23. Let's look at verse um, 15. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exalt when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. I mean, this Solomon really wrote these for his son, and I'd say his daughters too, to instruct them. But if you read through the Proverbs, I mean, there's only maybe like four or five main things that keep getting hit over and over again, right? Wayward women, the tongue, knowledge, fear the Lord, wisdom, right? I mean, that's just, that's what really gets hammered. But he says it for like 31 chapters. Why? Because we got to be reminded of those things. We need to hear those things. And so do our kids. I was on Facebook the other day, which I don't do that a whole lot. But <clears throat> um, there was this debate going on on a biblical topic, and two people, um, two youth, and, and I still think of them as youth, but they're probably you know, in their late 20s, um, were arguing against, basically, the Bible, what the Bible said on a particular topic. And these were two youth, um, and it goes back so far, some of you might not know them, some of you probably do, but um, these people grew up in our, in, in, in my youth ministry. In my youth ministry, they grew up. And here they are arguing against the Bible and what, what God's Word says on a particular subject. And they weren't just arguing. They were arguing vehemently for this particular position. And at first, I was mad. And then I was frustrated. But then then I was heartbroken. I really was. And, I mean, they had turned from biblical truth and were now espousing lies. And the whole next day after I read it, I mean, I, I was in my quiet time, and I was just overcome with a grief that, that this is what had happened. And that these people had had the truth and at some point come to a place where they rejected it. And a number of things saddened me about it, but one of the things that saddened me was that, I mean, they're not in a good place spiritually. And so they're missing out on a relationship with the Lord that, at least on an experiential level, is sweet and pleasing and joyous. And they're missing out on that because their mind has been clouded. And I don't, I don't have any contact with those families anymore, so I don't know what happened or where the corner got turned. <clears throat> but it should serve as a, it's a, it serves as a warning for me that I need to make sure that I'm trying to inculcate virtues into my kids and beliefs into my kids that I want them to have. Look, the world is going to do its job just fine and dandy. That's, there's no doubt about that. The question is, will, will we do our job? Okay, The world will do its job of inculcating all sorts of profane and gross things. We need to train and teach them the true and godly things. One of the things I want to say is we need to be aware of like a copy-paste mentality. Like, if my kids had had these virtues of mine, like we're all great or something like that, um, they'd be so much better off. Here's the thing. Your kids probably will pick up some of your good virtues, but they're going to pick up your bad vices as well. So when you you have a copy-paste mentality, whatever you copy, and then you hit paste, it all gets pasted, right? So... um, I think others take the opposite extreme. I don't want my kids to turn out like me. Well, guess what? Too bad. (laughs) 
I mean, they likely are going to turn out very close to you. I don't know about you. That personally, in terms of my own kids, it bothers me. All right? I mean, it's a little alarming. It's a little disturbing on some level. Okay? And as your kids start to get older, you start to see aspects of that. Sometimes it might just be stuff that has nothing to do with, it's just neutral things or whatever. Things they enjoy, things they like to do, foods they like to eat, right? They're becoming like you. That should, that should, it should, it terrifies me. (laughs) Okay? But, we need to use that, one, as a wake-up call for ourselves. Um, If we are in right relationship with the Lord, then Hopefully, that's what's being passed on. I mean, if we want our kids um, to witness, then they need to see us witness. If we want our kids to be generous, they need to see us be generous. Now, you know, it talks about don't let the left hand see what the right hand is doing. I actually don't think that applies when it comes to our own personal, intimate families. Because my kids need to know... I want my kids to know how I'm handling my finances. I shouldn't have anything to hide from them. If I do, then I'm probably not handling my finances properly. So if I'm being generous towards people, not like I give them a list or something, but I want them to be a part of that generosity. And so they, I want them to partake in it. And I want that, if, if I'm just hiding that all the time from them, then how am I going to pass that on to them? Same thing if I'm witnessing to you know, uh, the person at Lowe's or something like that. There's no, there's nothing. In fact, I would encourage you. That's what we need to share at the dinner table. Hey, when I was at Lowe's today, you know, the Lord prompted me to share with the the person at the checkout. They need to hear of that so that they can start to receive that as well. Hey, this is what mom and dad do, right? This probably seems obvious, but I would encourage you to seek out counsel on how to inculcate virtues you want your kids to have. Don't, Don't do the parenting thing alone. Um, there's too many good resources out there, too many people who have gone before us and, and done well for us not to take advantage of the wisdom out there. It's okay if you don't know it all. You're not expected to, but you are expected to get help where you need it. Along with that, I want to say this. Um, we need to speak up at key moments. Apparently, it looks like Isaac and Rebecca hadn't said anything to Esau when he married the Hittite women. I mean, it's just, it, they, they get married, right? He marries them, and then later it's like he's, he realizes, oh, they're not really pleased by them. What, did they not speak up? He marries them in 26, uh, but in 28 it says, Esau saw the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father. Now, he got married when he was 40, right? It's a little bit older than maybe we want our own kids to get married. Um, but did Isaac and Rebecca think that due to his age they couldn't speak into his life? Did they never voice concerns about the ways of the Hittites? I, I mean, I have to think they, if he was 40, he had to see the ways of the Hittites and, and how they acted. But obviously they did care because it bothered them. It bothered Isaac and Rebecca. But here's the thing. I'm 38, and I welcome my mom's input. don't always like it, but... I welcome it, okay? Just being honest. <clears throat> and I welcomed my dad's when he was here. Um, look, I understand that sometimes the hardest people to receive input from can be your parents. Uh, but think about that for a second. If it's hard for us, might not it also be hard for our children? Right? So maybe we need to give them a little grace. And... If we scorn our parents' input, then might not they see us scorning the input and then scorn our input? We just need to be careful, right? So you can welcome it and put it through the filter and take it or leave it, right? But um, if we want our kids to take our input or at least listen to it, then we should do the same likewise. The other thing is this. We need to make tough decisions. And I think as parents, we always want our kids to, to, be, to be happy. Right? Every parent wants their kid to be happy. That can be dangerous. Uh, but we need to be willing to make tough decisions. And I think sometimes, um, 
some of us can lean towards not making a decision. And just there's a situation that needs to be dealt with, but we just kind of, it's almost like we ignore it or something like that. Look at Numbers 30 because it kind of addresses that. Numbers 30. In verse 3 it says, If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. What's the point there? Not making a decision is making a decision. The father hears of the commitments and then just lets it go. He's agreeing with the commitments. Okay? So we have to be very careful about being silent. And I think the question... The question we want to be kind of bouncing around in our heads is, hey, what do we want to be the center of our family's life? Now, of course, the Christian answer is Christ. Duh, right? Okay, so we know the answer. How do we make it happen? That's the tough part. <clears throat> Look, let me talk about sports for a second. I, I've always loved playing sports, but it really wasn't until ninth grade that I really enjoyed watching sports, all right? In ninth grade, I was taken to my first college basketball game. Up until then, really didn't care about watching sports. Baseball, sure, it's St. Louis. Um, but any other sport, no. I fell in love with college basketball, then came college football. It was downhill from there. <laughs> but, you know, one of the reasons I fell in love with watching, with watching that was because my dad loved watching it. Right? So that's what he, one of the things he passed on to me. He loved it, wanted to be like my dad. Even at, at ninth grade, right? In, in my state of rebellion, which I was definitely getting there, um, my dad was still influencing me. And I have told Logan and Job, um, who love sports almost as much as me, they think they love it more, but I just hide it very well from them. I've told them that we're not going to be a sports family. We're going to be a God family first. Okay, That doesn't mean we won't do sports, but I want them to know that when it comes to um, how we shape the family, how we make decisions regarding activities, that the God thing, God will be at the center. He'll be the overarching thing by which different things work in. What does that mean? Well, where is God going to be commonly found? How are we going to be doing things God-oriented? Well, really, the life of the church is really where it should be probably key. And <clears throat> for us, it's, I mean, it's a work in progress. Some of you who don't care about sports, then this is easy-peasy stuff for you. You probably have other struggles. Um, but here's where I struggle with, and I'm just sharing. This is in the midst of the struggle. Um, if I'm doing sports two or three nights of the week, and then I'm only doing one church activity each week, is that, am I fulfilling my God's first mentality? That's where I'm, that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm actually working through that, okay? But insert whatever thing you want. Sports, you can take out sports and put in whatever activities you guys are involved in. But it's like, am I emphasizing, am I saying one thing and then emphasizing the other? But possibly, right? And it's not always like one hour here equals one hour there, and you just, as long as we've got three hours here, then we can do two and a half or two hours and 59 minutes. It's not that simple. These are things, though, that, that you as families need to struggle with and work through as well. Because we all want Christ as the center. That's what we say. But how does it play out in our lives? That's the key. Because our kids are the greatest at picking up on hypocrisy. So if we speak it and then do something else, they will see it. They will see it. They might not be able to 
verbalize it at a young age, but as they grow up, they will start to verbalize it. Look, Satan is just as happy to use neutral things like sports to render us less effective for the kingdom. He's he's happy to use sports. In fact, he has used sports to render people less effective for the kingdom. Um, He's used sports to draw people away um, from the king of kings. So we have to make tough decisions regarding things like that and how we're going to orient our lives and set things up. Here's the other thing. Um, some of the guys, the college students that changed the globe, some of the guys, it was, oh, a few months ago we were playing basketball. And um, some of the guys aren't that athletic, let's just say that. And so we're playing basketball, and, and I think one of them thought if you hit the rim, you get points just, you know, like our laser shot at the rim, whether it's underneath or on top or whatever. <clears throat> and so they're just, just like this laser shot at the, at the basket every time they get it. It didn't matter where they were at. Um, here's my point with that. Uh, athletic ability, when a guy comes calling on my daughter many, 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 many years from now, <laughs> <laughs> Um, athletic ability is not going to really be my greatest concern in terms of qualities that he has, right? Um, same thing, uh, <clears throat> probably when um, my sons, many, 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 many years from now, go, you know, calling on a lady, athletic ability, that's probably not going to be even in their concern for their future wife, right? It's going to be much other important things. And that stuff, and I'm just saying, I'm really preaching to myself here, but that's stuff that I'm, I, I need to remind myself of, right? That, those things aren't really going to matter. Those guys at, at Change the Globe might not be athletic, but, but um, many of those guys really love the Lord. So who cares if they can kick a ball or shoot a basketball or whatever? Okay. Uh, friends. Let's talk about your kids' friends for a second. If you don't like your kids' friends... Do something about it. And that's a tough decision. Sports is a tough decision. It's a tough decision for us. We've pulled back on sports. <clears throat> Friends, that's even tougher, I think. Again, you want your kids to be happy. And they're not going to be happy if you start getting involved with their friends. But what does that mean? Uh, that means uh, it can be tough stuff. But I think... One of the positives it means is you need to help foster friendships with your kids. Not with your kids, but foster friendships with your kids and these kids. Help those relationships, the ones that you want to see happen, help foster them. Um, Hang with families that have kids that you want your kids to be friends with. That's one of the ways you would foster it. Now, um, maybe you're not going to be the best of friends with those parents, right? but you're making a sacrifice for the benefit of your kids. So you're hanging out with people. Hey, I like those kids seem to be doing well. I want my kids to be influenced by those kids. I'm going to hang out with those families. And you'll have to be intentional about it. Um, You have to do the things the right way, too, when it comes to friends. I mean, you can't act like the prosecuting attorney, okay? And just hear the fact. It's a straightforward case. You can't be friends with them. Case over. Guilty as charged. Again, back to the shepherding, right? As they get older, it's gonna, it should be more of a dialogue, right? You're talking with them. You're getting feedback. You're, you're listening to them. You're showing them that you care about them, that, that you're hearing them on some level. This is where the legalist loses out. He's law and no gospel, right? I'm the head of the house. This is the way it is. Too bad. All right, that's... That's why male headship has such a bad rap, okay, because of stuff like that. Okay. <clears throat> you know, male headship really has to do with servant leadership, loving leadership. Anyone can be a tyrant, right, man or woman. So there's very little shepherding with that. Ruling with an iron fist, well, you're going to get it back at some point. You will receive it back, and it won't be pretty. So what you surround your family with will infiltrate and affect your family. Here's Isaac and Rebecca. 
they're living in Canaan. What happens? Canaan and the Canaanites affected Esau. Look at Lot, right? Sodom affected him and his daughters. I mean, they slept with their dad. All right? The culture influenced them towards that. They were living in moral degradation. So we need to be wise, right? Because we got our own Sodoms and Gomorrahs out there. We need to be wise with movies, friends, music, books. And just because you can handle it doesn't mean your kids can handle it. All right? Just because you can handle it doesn't mean your kids can handle it. Help them choose wisely. Now, I'm not advocating an isolationist view. You know, if you cut enough things out, your kids will turn out godly. It's not the way it works. All right? It's been tried. It's failed miserably. It's also, I'm also not advocating that you micromanage your children's entire lives. <clears throat> That's been tried and fails miserably, too. <clears throat> but what I'm encouraging you to do is to set up an atmosphere and work with your children as you shepherd their heart, right? If they see that you love them, not that you're setting all the rules, but that you love them, that can go a long way. You know what else? I have this later, but I'll say it now. You know what else can go a long way? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And I'm talking not just, uh, I mean, I don't know how it works in your family, but, you know, one of my kids sins against one of my other kids, and I'm like, okay, you know, we, we deal with the situation, and they need to go apologize, right? I was like, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Oh, that was really heartfelt, you know? You really meant that one. <clears throat> so when we, when we are asking for forgiveness, and we should be asking for forgiveness from our children, unfortunately, it happens... On a, what feels like a too regular, much basis in my family, on my part, right? I feel like every week I'm going and asking them for forgiveness from something. But that should be occurring, and it needs to be, they need to see that it's real when it does occur. They need to see that it's real, that we really are sorry for how we handle the situation, for what we said to them. They need to see that, that we are bothered that we sinned against them. Let's not do the same kind of, you know, half-hearted apologies sometimes that our kids can do. Let's, if we have to sit down and be humbled, which I'm humbled every time I have to apologize to my kids, but that's a good thing, then let's do that. You know, my kids always want, they always want the privileges. You know, Logan and Joe Bird, oh, we want to do that. We want to see this movie. We want to go to this friend's house. We want to, we want, uh, we want you to increase our allowance, Dad. We want to stay up later. We want our bedtime pushed back. And what I tell them is that, you know, I'm like, you, you just don't get to pile on all the privileges in life without responsibilities coming with it. You know, they go hand in hand. So as you uh, get more responsibilities, then you get more privileges, right? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't work, work the opposite way. So I, I've explained this to them, and we've talked to them, and they want, oh, they want this privilege. And well, let's, you know, do your responsibilities match those privileges? Okay. As you become more responsible, as you show you can take care of yourself, as you show you can make wise decisions, then you get more freedom. You get to make some of those decisions. Now, after telling one of them this, they said, can I go back to being Ethan's age? (laughs) 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 And they were serious, and I, I understand it, right? Not much privilege, but no responsibility, really. This was about a year ago. But listen, this this is like, you know, if we think about it, it's like an oven. We have to teach our, our, our children that when the oven's on, it's hot. Right? We have to teach them that. You can't hide the oven. You can't get rid of the oven. You need the oven. You can't act like the oven isn't there. You have to show them how to wisely and carefully interact with the oven. That doesn't mean waiting until they're 18, opening the door of the oven and throwing them into it. It means being wise about it. And let me just touch uh, briefly on emotional scars. What emotional scars might our children be receiving from us? Now remember, our ministry to them is a ministry of nurture. 
And what do we want our children to remember about their childhood? What do we want them to remember? Do we want them to remember, yeah, dad yelled a lot, or I wasn't treated very well by mom? No, none of us want that. But here's the thing, we can control that. If we have the Spirit of God living in us, we can walk in the fruit of the Spirit. And we can control that. None of us are forced to treat our kids badly or poorly or unlovingly. We're not. So change now if you need to. You want to know what I remember as a kid? My parents were divorced when I was seven. You want to remember what I remember? I remember the fights. I remember the arguments. I remember the tears of my sister who was older than me and realized where this was headed. That's what I remember until I was seven. So there's probably many fond memories there, I'm sure, that I just don't recollect. Why? Because that was kind of the overarching thing that I heard and saw. Now, my dad wasn't saved at the time, and my mom was very young in the faith, okay? The point is, that's what my memories were. What do you want your kids to remember when they look back 10, 20 years from now? Is it going to be bitter memories, or is it going to be sweet memories? Okay. If you have to make it right, then now is the time to do it. Okay, The Lord, if, we ha- if you haven't been doing a good job, look, the Lord says he can restore the years that the locusts have eaten, right? So that's where the forgiveness, the humbling, the apology can go a long way. If it's sincere and if it's followed by change. Here's the thing about forgiveness One who truly understands forgiveness knows that he not only needs to give it, but he also needs to ask for it. If we truly understand forgiveness, uh, we know that we not only need to give it, but we also need to ask for it. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but i got a lot to say, and I'm running out of time. Amen to which part, running out of time. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Jake. Um, I think that I'll, I'm going to say this. Uh, it might not apply to all of us, but we need to be careful we don't demand um, perfection from our kids. Um, and here's the thing. Don't demand from them what's taken you decades to produce in your own life. Does that make sense? So, um, you know, we can't expect our 10-year-old to be acting with the maturity of a 25-year-old. I mean, think to when you were 10, if you can go back that far. Um, I mean, what were you like? How long did it take to get to where you are at today? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? I mean, so we need to make sure we don't demand the same level from them. Even, I would say, spiritually, okay? I mean, a 5-year-old is not going to have all the going to be found, grounded in the faith like hopefully a 25-year-old is, right? So I'm not saying don't set the bar high. I'm all about setting the bar high. Um, but set it at an appropriate high level. Okay, Don't set the bar for the 8-year-old at the 16-year-old level. And don't set the bar for the 10-year-old or for the 5-year-old at the 12-year-old level. Set it appropriately. And we need to use our words wisely. Um, I have observed, well, I've probably observed all of you interact with your children. Might I encourage all of us to use kinder, gentler words? Myself included. I definitely could do a better job in this. Um, Especially, I don't get stressed out a lot, but I do get stressed out sometimes. And so if it's, it's crunch time or something, then it seems like my ability to walk in the Spirit you know, greatly shortens, all right? And then my words don't aren't as kind and gentle as they really should be. Uh, but we need to be using those words. Think of how the Lord, this is really good. This is what the Lord spoke to me about this. Think of how the Lord speaks to you. What is the voice that you hear from your Heavenly Father? I mean, is he is he, like, screaming at you? Is he yelling at you? Now, maybe he is, but that's not, that's, that's an improper tone. That's an unbiblical tone, I would say, 99.9999% of the time. You should be hearing from your Heavenly Father. Uh, how is your Heavenly Father, when, you, when He's speaking to your heart, 
You know, is he nudging it? Is he gentle? Is he caring? Is he loving? Because if we as parents are supposed to be like our Heavenly Father, then, then that's really how we should be 99% of the time. Gentle, kind, loving. What's that voice that you hear God speak to you? I don't know about you. God doesn't yell at me much. That doesn't mean he's not happy, unhappy with me sometimes. But he doesn't do much yelling and screaming at me. And I don't think he does for you either. So when, when we interact with our children, let, let them see how our Heavenly Father interacts with us. Love, grace, mercy. Let's look at 2 Peter 1. Because that's the verse that's been behind me the whole time. <laughs> All of that was my introduction to get to my main passage. <laughs> no, it's really the culmination of everything I've said. First, uh, Second Peter. Did I say first? I meant second. Second Peter 1. Verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Don't you just love the Apostle Paul? Because he just can write like a hundred words in one sentence, Right? And you've got to like, take time and actually meditate on it and unpack it for a little bit. So, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things. What is it? What have we been granted? All things. But what are those all things? Regarding what? Things that pertain to life and godliness. How is it appropriated? How is it given to us? Through the knowledge of Him. But it goes on says, who called us to his own glory and excellence. It goes on, by which he has granted, there's that word again, granted. He has granted, we get something else granted, to us, his precious and very great promises. What are those precious and great promises? Well, I think we get a hint of it in verse 11, if you look there. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, that's a promise. Look at chapter 3 real quick, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's a promise, right? So why does he grant them? Keep reading. So that through them, he's granted us the kingdom. He said, it's yours. You have it. I'm coming back. I'm going to claim you. That's yours. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Notice the past tense. You have escaped the corruption that is in the world. Do you live like it? The Bible says you've escaped from it. Now we need to live like it. What does this mean? I mean, here God's offering us to be partakers of the divine nature. That is some pretty intense stuff. Sit down and think about that for a while. And we've escaped from the corruption, past tense. What does this mean? You can abound in godliness. If you escape the corruption... If God's saying we are going to be partakers of the divine nature, if you have the fruit of the Spirit, if you are abiding in the vine, then you can partake. You can eat the bread. You can abound in godliness. You know the hardest place to abound in godliness? It's the home. I mean, it's one thing to walk in the Spirit around co-workers, even at church, but at home with your spouse, with your children. That can be a different story. And here's the thing. Men, we are called... Well, look at Ephesians 5. Okay. Men, we are called to die for our wife if necessary. We have no command in Scripture specifically 
to do that for others. Now, you could argue, love your neighbor, okay, maybe that's an extension of it. No command specifically to do that, really, for anyone else. But here, he says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love her? He gave himself up for her. He died for her. Okay, love her, Jesus is saying, like I loved her. And guess what? I died for her. We have this specific command here. And we, you, I, you have a covenant with your wife and you entered it. Not by coercion. Right? Of your own free will. So we need to be men of our word and stick to our word and be faithful to our covenant that we made. What does this mean? Not just fumbling through it. Not just mediocrity. You remember the words you used in your covenant? For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. And maybe some of you have it for worse. Maybe some of you have it for poorer. Maybe some of you have it for sickness. But you made a vow. And you made a covenant. And you have no option but to uphold it. But here's the thing. Upholding it just doesn't mean going through the laundry list of things to do. Back to Ephesians 5. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the command. That's not laundry list stuff. That's loving her, ministering to her, nurturing her. Look, if you made that vow, it's kind of hard to wiggle out of that. If you spoke it, you're bound. God was there. Witnesses were there. There was a ceremony performed. And you entered into it. Look, I don't have a commitment with you anywhere close to something like that. I've not entered into a divinely ordained institution with any of you. You don't do this for your sake so that your life will be happy. You don't do this for your wife's sake. You don't even do it for your kid's sake. Those are all good secondary reasons, but you do it for Christ's sake. And I'm not trying to be blasphemous there. You do it for the sake of Jesus Christ. For his sake, for his glory. Look, here's, here's the key. Die to self. Die to self. And that's hard to do. And it's an everyday process. Like I wake up every day, I gotta die again. I, I talked to a guy 15 years ago, I talked to a guy, he was struggling in his marriage. And his wife was, was, you know, you, you can assign the blame however you want, but she played a big role in it. And, I said to him, um, you, need to, you need to get things right with, with your family, with your wife. You need to get where God wants you to be. And he said, um, if I do that, it will be, um, it will be hell. And, and I said back to him, <clears throat> better one year of hell than 20 years of crap. Excuse my language. But that's what I said. Okay? And I, I believe that. I mean, better to go through this horrible, nasty, tough year and see God get it to where it needs to be than to just living in, in misery for 20 years. I mean, if you're going to be married, let's, why not have a good marriage? Right? I mean, your spouse, they're not going anywhere. So let's make it good. Let's, let's make it good. Why? For his sake. All right? Forget about you. Forget about your wife. Forget about your kids. You've covenanted, really, before God. And it just doesn't make sense to me that you're like, you know, you have your arm around your wife, and you're like, oh, Jesus, I love you. You're awesome. And then you turn over, and you're like, I hate you. You're like, Jesus is so great, and he's meant everything to me, and you're a jerk. Those things don't go together, folks. They just don't. One of them's hypocrisy. And you know which one it is. So, let's have some reformation go on in our marriages if they need it. Let's have some transformation go on. God 
<clears throat> out of all the possible, um, what's the word? Illustrations, I guess I'll use. Out of all the things he could have used to compare marriage to, what does he compare to? His relationship with the church. What does that mean? He takes marriage pretty seriously. He could have he could have compared it to anything. His relationship with the church. He could have compared it to anything he wanted to. But the what he what did he do? He chose marriage. Why? That, I mean, it's really, it, it gets kind of trippy when you start thinking about it. If you keep reading in Ephesians uh, five, because it says that he might sanctify her. Verse twenty six. Right. Our job, men. I'm having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Right, not beat down and discouraged, holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. He's saying, when God sets this up in Genesis, he already had the idea of Christ's relationship to us. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Our marriage union with our wife. Christ in the church. And, and, and maybe your relationship isn't really doing a good job of being a good witness for Christ in the church. But when people look at it, they're getting some message. That's the way Christ set it up. They're getting some message about what you believe, really about Jesus. What's the witness that you're getting when they look at your marriage? Okay, whatever that is, you want something good for your kids? You want your kids to grow and to flourish? The best thing you can do, really, is to love your spouse. It really is. I mean, love Christ, right? But truly love your spouse. You want your kids to feel loved and accepted? Love your spouse. When the um, parents, when the kids see that, it brings so much um, self-assurance to the kids. There's a place of safety where they can be, right? There's a place of protection. They see that things are good here, and that means I'm going to be good. Things are, are solid here, that means I'm okay. It's a place of protection. That's what Christ wants for us. He wants us not to be the lawgivers, but to be the gospel givers, the grace givers, the ministers, right? We're supposed to be the priest, the prophet, the king. That's great. That's awesome. Let's just love our wives. Let's minister to them. Let's love them. Let's nurture them. Just Let's just take Ephesians 5, okay? How about that? We'll ignore the hundreds of other... Let's not ignore them, but we'll put them secondary. And... Let's just work on Ephesians 5 for a couple of months and see if that doesn't drastically change your marriage. Right there. That mystery is profound, Christ says. Let's make it profound. Let's make people see our marriages and be like, man, what is going on? It's profound. Okay. The abundant life and, and a mediocre approach to our marriage, I mean, they don't go together. They don't. The abundant life and a mediocre approach to our children, it doesn't work. Because Christ wants all of you. And when he claimed you, he claimed all of you. Every single part of you. Every single aspect of your life, he claimed you. He grabbed you. He, you know, he is a jealous God. And he wants it all. Why? For his glory. But because he loves you so much. He knows much better than us. What is best for us? I want us to have the abundant life. I want us to abound in godliness in this area. It is hard. It is challenging. Each one of us can speak to that personally. None of us want to nod our head. But marriage can be very, very challenging and hard and frustrating and downright discouraging at times. And apart from Christ, it will continue to be. But with him, it can be a joyous, beautiful thing. It can be an amazing thing that puts everything else much farther beneath. And if we're doing that, if we're really doing it for Christ's sake, then it will benefit our kids. It will benefit 
our wives, and it will benefit us. So let's abound. Let's pray. Lord, pray for our marriages here, God, that you would put your hand upon them, that you would protect them. Pray against a spirit of um, divorce, God, or anything like that, that you would protect our marriages. I pray that the men would be the men that you want us to be, God. Forgive us for falling short in this area, Lord. Help us to be men enough to go and apologize to our wives for where we have failed to make things right, God. Lord, help us to endeavor for your sake to be faithful to our covenant vows. To know that there will be good seasons and bad seasons, joyous seasons and seasons of mourning, Lord. But you are there through it all. You carry us through it all, God. Do this work, Lord, really in us. Let us not be focused on our spouse's issues, but our own. And we ask for transformation. We ask for reformation, God, in our marriages. That they reflect your relationship with the church in all its glory. We ask that you would do this, God, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.